Good morning again. As we prepare for the public reading of Scripture, we want to look at a catechism question from our Westminster Standards. These standards were written in the 1640s in England, and they help us. They remind us of what is true and how good God is. And last week and next week, we're going to look at this same larger catechism question. We use it now, uh, hoping that it will prepare us for this reading of God's Word. So I'll lead us in this question, and we can all answer together. What makes the Word effective for salvation? The Spirit of God causes the reading, and especially the preaching of the Word, to enlighten, convince, and humble sinners. The Spirit drives sinners out of themselves and draws them to Christ. He conforms them to His image and subdues them to His will. He strengthens them against temptations and corrupting influences, and He builds them up in God's grace and establishes their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith to salvation. Just before Emily reads this passage to us from John 4, I want to set the scene For Jesus, he has at this point begun his public ministry, and he is traveling from the south, really southern Israel, Judea, to the north, to Galilee, and in between there is this special land called Samaria, which most Jews avoid, but not Jesus. And as our scripture begins, he is weary, he's tired, it's 12 noon, it's hot, he's walking through Samaria, he sees a well. He walks over to it and sits down, leans against it. Emily, will you read for us, please? This morning's lesson comes from John chapter 4, verses 7 through 29 and verse 39. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would not have asked him, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the new worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people, people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we desire to worship in spirit and in truth. Would you lead us to do that now and lead us to see Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen. Sean Brock was born in Virginia. And when Sean was growing up, he spent a lot of time in vegetable gardens, in his grandmother's vegetable gardens, where she would grow this red corn. She called it this jimmy corn. And she would harvest the corn and make this beautiful pan of cornbread that was a mixture of both red and yellow. And he said from his time with his grandmother in those gardens, he learned to love dirt. And he decided, as a young man, to become a chef as a result of the time with his grandmother. He went through training to be a chef, and Sean got his first job. It was to take over a kitchen in a hotel in downtown Nashville. So he set the date for opening night, published the menu, and took reservations. Over 200 people made reservations to come to the opening night. Finally, he would be a chef and show everyone what he could do. But the night did not happen as he had so hoped. Looking back, he says that he might have fed a little bit over 50 people of the more than 200 that showed up. His kitchen was in chaos. The staff wasn't prepared. There wasn't enough food. He felt this enormous layer of shame come over him as he realized what he'd hoped for most in life was was crashing down before him. And it seemed like everyone would know. But at the end of the night, he thought maybe this shame will just be contained to a few dozen people. He was wrong. The local newspaper wrote a review of the evening, and they described the place as mass chaos. They described the food as tasteless, poorly prepared, and soggy. 
He didn't think that it could, could, that it could get any worse. He was covered in his own shame, but it did get worse. The worst part of it wasn't the soggy food. It wasn't <clears throat> what ran in the newspaper. It was what he did in response with his shame. See, he had given his heart to his work, and his work didn't hold up and prove his worth. So he thought, I'll just try to get more out of my work. He dedicated himself to working as hard as he possibly could. He worked seven days a week for ten months straight. Now, you can't work uh, seven days a week for ten months straight without your relationships falling apart, right? He even says that he slept in the restaurant under tables using a dry mop as his pillow. He gave his heart and life completely to his work. His entire staff quit. He lost all of his friends, but he kept working. But then his body gave out. It was one thing to lose all his friends and to lose his staff, but his body began to break down. And how could it not, working seven days a week, ten months straight? Because your body remembers your body keeps the score. He woke up one morning with double vision, dizzy with vertigo, and he could no longer work and prove himself. He'd reached the end of his rope. His life had completely come crashing down. Now what would he do, though? Because he still had this shame for not performing as a chef. He couldn't prove himself through his work because he couldn't see well what was left. Sean remembered that he had a garage full of bourbon. So he went to the bourbon and began to drink away his shame and his sorrow. I want to suggest this morning that we are not so different from Sean in how we handle shame that we feel deeply in our hearts and how we handle shame for what we have done to others and even for what we've done to ourselves. Sean's case might seem extreme to sleep in a restaurant, to use a dry mop as his pillow. But I think we, just like him, we will do almost anything to avoid looking at the deepest parts of our heart. There are a couple different ways I think we do this, to avoid looking at what is most deep in our hearts, to avoid dealing with the shame that we carry. For some of us, it's, it's simply staying busy. We don't want to deal with the restlessness or the disappointment in our hearts, so we stay busy running from one thing to the next. For some of us, maybe we are like Sean. We've embraced work as the gold standard, and we will try to work ourselves to death, whatever our work is, even if it leads us to a point of exhaustion, sickness, and losing friendships. It might be that you've given your heart not so much to work, but to some other good things like sports or a hobby, trying to extract some sense of life out of that that it cannot possibly give. Or maybe also, like Sean, for you, it's what you eat or what you drink, trying to meet emotional needs through that. We'll do almost anything to avoid looking in our own hearts and to avoid change. And actually, you see that in this story with a Samaritan woman who so skillfully tries to change the subject at least twice. She will do anything to avoid dealing with her shame. And her shame comes most foundationally, not so much from what she has done, but from who she is. For who she is, she feels this deep shame. 
Well, Jesus is determined to engage her heart, and I want us to see first what he does. He meets her in her shame. He meets her in her shame. In our story, Jesus is weary. I love that. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He got tired and weary. He had muscle aches and headaches. He's thirsty. He sits by a well, and he asks this woman for a drink, and she is flabbergasted at the thought that this Jewish man would even speak to her, right, by this well. So she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? This might seem somewhat shocking, but I'm not sure we understand just how incredible it is that the Lord would speak to her. For in that time, the Jewish people would avoid Samaria completely. They would ignore it. They would actually take a longer route to get north to Galilee and other places so that they wouldn't have to walk through Samaria. Samaria was an unclean place. Samaritans were viewed as unclean. They were racially mixed, partly Jewish, partly Gentile, partly from those who came from Assyria from the east and had colonized the area. So strict Jews avoided them. There's a sense of shame she carried simply from being, for being a Samaritan, so she's amazed that Jesus would speak to her on that level. But also, she's a woman. And at the end of our passage, you see the disciples marvel that Jesus would even speak to a woman. In Jewish life, men were not supposed to speak much to women, even their own wives. And in worship, they weren't supposed to utter a single word. Women were not supposed to even touch the Bible. The giant scrolls of the Scripture up front, women were not allowed to get close, were not allowed to touch that Scriptures for fear that they would defile it. There was a sense in which they were unclean. So if they were to touch the Scriptures, they would make the Scriptures unclean. This is why the disciples would marvel that Jesus would even speak, that he would deign to speak with a woman. She lives with a shame that she carries daily. Her culture says to her, you don't matter. We will ignore you. You have nothing to contribute because you're a Samaritan and you are a woman. I grew up in the Mississippi Delta, moved there in the mid-1970s as a little boy. And I remember the division between African-Americans and white people was very stark there. I remember one day in particular, being five, year, five years old, walking down Main Street in this small town with my mother, and an African-American man came around the corner and was walking toward us, and as we approached him, I thought we would just walk right by him like we would anyone else. But as we got nearer, he stepped into the street, off of the curb, into the street to allow us to pass. Then he entered back on the sidewalk. And I noticed this was happening, not all the time, but often I began to ask my mother about it. It seemed so strange. Then I noticed that when we go to the local Sonic, there was a white side and an African-American side. And the two didn't mix. Now, as a five-year-old, those memories are indelibly marked on my memory. And I knew that African-Americans in the 1970s, in the Mississippi Delta, carried a sense of fear, fear of violence, fear of being ridiculed. But what I learned later in talking to some of them is that what hurt them just as much as carrying that fear was that they were completely ignored. 
ignored by the majority culture, set aside, not acknowledged as real human beings. And I wonder if on some level you have felt that. If you've been set aside, ignored, not because of what you've done, but simply because of who you are. Have you been ignored, viewed as less than, because of your race or your ethnicity? Have you felt this because you're a woman, and when you share your opinion, you're viewed as simply the emotional one, when that's not the case? Have you been set aside because of your age, because you're young, and you're young, and what could you know? And yet we have so much to learn from young people who have such zeal for Jesus. Maybe you've been set aside because you're middle-aged. You feel like young people get more attention. You're ignored. Or you feel set aside because you're older, and you're the ones we really need to be listening to because you have the most wisdom. It can be from race, ethnicity, your gender, your age, or just in your family. You're viewed as the strange one. You're misunderstood simply because of who you are. Or you have feelings of same-sex attraction, you feel set aside, marginalized. Or because of your sexuality, a trauma you've been through, or an abuse you've been through and endured, you feel set aside, ignored, as if you don't matter. It's exactly what this woman feels here. See, she feels shame down deep in her bones And in the conversation with Jesus at at this point, what she has done, having five husbands, hasn't even come up yet. But the fact that she's a Samaritan woman, she is shocked that Jesus would speak to her. How does Jesus meet her in her shame? He speaks to her. He speaks to her. And simply in doing that, he crushes social convention because he cares about her. And so he responds and says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Who is the gift of God? Right, Jesus. If you knew who I am, you would respond differently, he says. And she says, look, you don't have anything to draw water with. I know you're thirsty, but this well is deep. Where are you going to get the kind of water that's living. She's grappling with what he's trying to say. And he says, look, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Just as he, on one hand, crushes social convention by speaking with this woman who feels so unclean, at the same time, notice how tender Jesus is. He uses water. Now, water's not threatening to this woman. She comes and draws it. She obviously drinks the water. Water is simply what's on hand. And so the Lord, to reach into her heart, uses this water. It didn't have to be water. It could have been anything. Jesus could have been near a field of wheat, and he would have used the wheat to illustrate who he is. He would have said, as he does later in the Gospel of John, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. He could have used the sun's rays. He could have simply looked up and said, do you see those rays that warm the earth, that light the earth? He says this later in, in John, speaking of light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is a masterful 
teacher and pastor here. Whether it's water or wheat or the sun's rays, he simply uses what's not threatening to her to reach down into her heart. And she responds by saying, give me this water. She's open now. She says, I don't want to be thirsty. I don't want to come here to draw water again. Can you give me this water? She doesn't fully understand what he's offering right at this point, but she's getting there. Jesus then, in response, moves even deeper into her heart. He doesn't say to her, well, look, I'm the king. I'm the Messiah. I need you to repent uh, and believe in me. Because that would overwhelm her, right? So what does he say? What does the Scripture say? That he, the very next thing that he says, go call your husband. Go call your husband and come here. She says adroitly, I have no husband. And Jesus could crush her in this moment, but he doesn't, right? He says, you're, you're, you're right. You're telling the truth. You don't have a husband, but you've had five husbands, and the woman you live, the man you live with now is not your husband. That's true. What you've said is true. You don't have a husband to bring to me now, but I know you have a trail of heartache. Five husbands and maybe a sixth maybe a seventh. What is Jesus doing? He's not playing with her. He's not toying with her, of course, right? He engages her about the part of her life that causes her the greatest shame and pain. She is on a spiritual journey searching for a love that will last and that will be a source of unfailing joy in her her life, which might lead her to a sixth or seventh or eighth husband had she not met Jesus. But Jesus wants to engage her heart. He always does that, doesn't he? He zeroes in on the heart. In another passage, when a rich man comes to Jesus and says, what do I have to do to be saved? Jesus ultimately looks at the man and says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Jesus knows exactly what's that thing there that you love more than me, and he seizes upon it. So Jesus does not overwhelm this woman. He's careful with her and begins to move deep, more deeply into her heart. Now, Jesus could <clears throat> have responded very differently. He could have sort of taken her by the shoulders, so to speak, and said, look, you've got to wake up. Now is the time to repent. And there are times in which Jesus does that, when he raises his voice and does that, especially to the Pharisees who are leading people away from the love of God. But not here. Not now. Not with this woman. He's very tender. The Scripture speaks to the tenderness of Jesus. In both Isaiah and Matthew, the Scripture says of Jesus, a bruised reed he will not break. Now, what's a reed? A reed is a tall, slender, thin grass. It's usually by some water. It's not strong like a tree, right? A bruised reed especially would be very weak. You wouldn't go sit on a reed like you might go sit in a tree A reed, as it goes back and forth in the wind, is very weak. And a bruised reed, then, would be especially weak. Now, we don't know all the ins and outs of this woman's story, this Samaritan woman, but we do know she's a Samaritan. She's a woman in this culture. She's had five husbands. She's a bruised reed. Jesus is the way he is with her because a bruised reed he will not 
break. So he engages her in the deepest heart level, which is exactly what Jesus wants to do with you this morning, to engage you on the very deepest heart level. Now, you've come here to worship God, to sing, to connect with people, and those are all good and right things to do. But I also know that you are a bruised reed. I know this because I've spent time with you, and you have opened up your lives with me. I know you are a bruised reed. That you carry bruises from suffering you did not ask for and that you did not want. Bruises from suffering you do not deserve. Bruises from the heartache of living in a fallen world where you hurt and the people you love so much hurt as well. And from your bruises, I know that at times you question whether Jesus can be this tender with you and whether he is this tender with you, particularly if you look in the Old Testament and you see God at work there and you think, wow, he seems mean and demanding and uncaring. But the scripture says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to get to know God, you look at Jesus. That's who he is. That's who the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are with you. But I know it's hard. It's hard to maintain an open heart to Jesus, to ask him to be at work in your life, to believe that he is tender and always will be. It feels risky, but Jesus, just as he does with this woman, meets you in your shame and in your suffering. Chris Christopherson is a country music star. He's in his 80s, and he's still touring. He got a start in Nashville in the 1960s, he was actually traveling through the city, and he stayed overnight with a, with a friend. And a friend of his worked at the Grand Ole Opry. So his friend said, why don't you come with me to the Opry tonight? We can stand kind of in the back behind the curtains and just watch whoever performs. So Chris thinks this is great. So he does this with his friend, stands off in the side, and watches the performers at the Opry that night. Chris hasn't written any songs. He's not known at all. But he sees Johnny Cash walk out on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry and perform. And later, Chris said, I knew in that moment exactly what I wanted to do. From the response that Cash got from the Opry and watching what he did, Christofferson said, that's what I want to do. He had been in the Army, so he resigned that and moved to Nashville in 1965 He hadn't performed publicly at all. He hadn't published any music. So he thought, how can I get into the music business? He went up to a music studio and applied to be a janitor and got the job. And so he thought, this will be my way to get in, right, literally through the door, to go there every day to work as a janitor. But, of course, he hadn't published any music. He's cleaning toilets and bathrooms and the kitchen, and he decides here's what I'll do, he says. I will write down song lyrics on loose-leaf notebook paper, rip out the paper, and plant these lyrics strategically throughout the studio under drink coasters, in drawers. And he's thinking maybe some famous musician will open the drawer, see these lyrics, and say, wow, who wrote this? I simply must sing this song. It didn't work. Uh, So he continued to work to be a janitor at this studio. Well, one day he gets a letter in the mail from his mother. 
who lives in South Texas, and the letter stuns him. He brings it into work and shares it with the owner in the owner's office. And the letter from his mother said to him, Chris, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. You're an embarrassment to the family. Don't come home again. You're nothing to me. So Chris takes a chance. He comes into work that day. He reads this letter, shares it with the owner. And just as he reads the words, don't come home again, you're nothing to me, this door flies open. And in walks this man dressed in black with a deep baritone voice who says, what's going on? And the owner says, listen to this letter. And Chris reads it again. Don't come home again. You're nothing to me. So Johnny Cash walks over to Chris, puts his arm around him, smiles, and says, ain't it great to get a letter from home? (laughs) And in that moment, though, Chris's shame was covered because he knew he had a place, right? And in that moment, the body of Christ reached out to Chris Christofferson, and it changed everything. Even after getting such a painful letter from home, and Johnny really took him into his life, showed him the music business. Johnny and his wife took Chris to church. Chris went down front, gave his life to the Lord Jesus. But if you know the life of Johnny Cash, you know that it was Cash whose parents really disowned him. Not so much his mother, but his father was always going at him. And Cash knew what it was like to be disowned by a parent. He was the perfect guy in the perfect moment to meet Chris in his shame. And that was no accident. And that's what happens here. And that's what's happening in your life. Because in Jesus, you have a Savior who knows what it's like to be set aside, who knows what it's like to be left behind by a parent. When Jesus was on the cross, what did he cry out? My God, my God, why have you left me? Why have you ignored me? Why have you turned away from me? Why have you forsaken me? You carry shame this morning for who you are, what you've done. You have a Savior who knows what it's like to feel that sort of shame to be turned away from the one he loved the most. This is what Jesus is to you this morning, what he is to this woman here. A bruised reed he will not break, and he won't break you because he himself is a bruised reed. Well, it's not just that Jesus meets her in her shame. It's second and finally that he changes her life too. When Jesus inquires as to the pain in her life, what does she do? Well, she changes the subject. She first tries to sidetrack him by saying, I don't have a husband that doesn't work because he knows everything. So she senses he's some sort of prophet, so she asks a sort of prophety question about worship. She changes the subject, and she's skillful in doing so, and we are too. And I wonder if you have done this recently. Someone asks you about an area of your life you don't want to talk about, So you give a quick answer, you change the subject to sports, to movies, to traffic, anything that is safe you think that person wants to talk about because you don't want to take a risk and open up your heart 
But that area of life that you don't want to talk about is a nuclear bomb. And the radiation from that bomb spreads and colors every area of your life and strips you of joy. And Jesus has come to bring this woman joy and to bring you joy too. And so he will not allow areas of your life to be uncovered. So she asks this prophety question, which mountains should we worship on? The mountain that the Samaritans tend to worship on, Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem? Here's the problem with that question. It doesn't really address her heart, right? It's not a heart issue for her. She's saying, do I walk this way or do I walk that way when I worship? Because you're a prophet, you probably know the answer to that. She's thinking, well, he is just pressed into her life in a painful area. She doesn't want to go into it. And Jesus then answers her question. He doesn't ignore it, but he says, neither mountain. And he says, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, at this point in the story, this might sound terribly off topic. It might sound like, Jesus, you were really zeroing in there on her heart, and then you kind of put on your seminary professor hat to talk about the right way to worship. You probably have lost her. He hasn't lost her at all. And in fact, in speaking of worship, he's speaking directly to the fact that she's had five husbands and lives with a man now who's not her husband. She asks, which mountain should I go to? He says, neither one. The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. He wants her to worship him. And so he says, this is how you do it. You worship in spirit and in truth. So what does that mean? Well, to worship in spirit means you worship wherever you are. It doesn't have to be on some certain mountain. And certainly what happens in here is a special form of weekly worship. God is spirit. He's not confined to some particular mountain, city, nation, or denomination. And second, worship in truth. Jesus says to the woman, you worship what you don't know. She says, well, I know the Messiah is coming. And then wonderfully, he says, well, that's who I am. I'm him. When he says worship in truth, what does he mean? He means this, worship God according to who I am. Worship God according to my nature and who I am. I am the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the full expression of God. When we see him, we see him, we see God. And Jesus says the Father is seeking such people to worship him. We see now that Father is seeking the Samaritan woman. It's no accident that Jesus walked through Samaria and met this woman. Jesus is not avoiding the topic of her five husbands. No, she, he is addressing it very directly as he speaks about worship. Worship in spirit and truth has everything to do with her having five husbands. Jesus knows that for her to live a changed life, to not go on to a sixth, seventh, and eighth husband, she must love something more than getting the next husband. But only the love of something more beautiful than the next husband will change her life and bring her lasting joy. It's the beauty of who he is that is the lasting beauty and that will give her joy. So I mentioned growing up in the Mississippi Delta, and as you know, it's flat. It's very flat there, and sunsets are gorgeous. 
And so if you ever see any sort of hill, you really take notice. Again, because everything is flat. So again, when I was a little boy, I remember playing in Fireman's Park in the center of this very small town. My friends and I were walking around in the park looking for what to do. We didn't have a kickball or a football, so we weren't sure what to do. But we did know about this one hill in the center of the park, (coughs) and grass had grown over it. And so we saw this hill. It was me and about four or five other guys. And I said to them, all right, we have to think of a game to play. And we were trying to think of a game. And I, I came up with one that I'd learned from someone else. I said, let's play King of the Hill. Here's the game. This is a very boy game, by the way. Here's the game. I'll walk up this hill that's about eight or nine feet tall and stand up there. And I will be the King of the Hill. And you guys stand down there, and you rush me one at a time. And as you rush me one at a time, I will crouch my knees, get down, and bop you and nail you down. If you can knock me over, you get to be king of the hill. But I'm the king of this hill. So we played that for like an hour. That's all we needed, right? We didn't need a ball in that moment to play king of the hill. I remember getting a bloody nose, and I remember it was very hard in that moment. But fun, too, to be a little boy and just to have no sense of time and to play. As I share that story to say, if you think of the game King of the Hill, I want you to think of your heart. There is a king in your heart. If you've come to the Lord Jesus, that's him. He is standing up there with you, whether you want him there all the time or not. Okay? He is the king of your heart. And I'm wondering what's rushing at your heart. What is something or someone today that is trying to take over. For you, it's not to have a sixth husband or a seventh husband. But with Jesus, as you follow him, he stands with you on this hill, pushing back at whatever tries to control you, whatever rushes at you, trying to take over your life to be your next idol. And as he's walking with you, he gives you a real spiritual power as you worship in spirit and truth. This is where the power comes from, to push back at those things that seek to take over our lives and make us less than we were meant to be. It comes from worshiping in spirit and truth, that is to worship Jesus and according to his nature. This is the greater love, which displaces lesser loves. And it works this way because Jesus has an inexhaustible beauty and an inexhaustible power and strength that these other things we crave so much cannot possibly have. Jesus is more beautiful. And that's why he turns to this woman and says, you've had five husbands, you live with potentially another. Here's the way to change. Worship in spirit and truth. Worship in spirit and truth. I don't know what's rushing at your heart this morning, first thing when you woke up. It's not maybe a next husband. Maybe it's your work. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's money or the love of money. Maybe it's your next meal. Maybe it is bourbon. I don't know. It's something else that's rushing at you Daily. You're not the only one standing on that hill. Jesus is there, and he's more beautiful. If you want your life to change this morning, the answer is not to try harder, to do right, to memorize more Scripture, to be smarter, or to manage your pain better or hide your shame. No, a changed life only comes through worshiping the Father in spirit and truth. And whatever you love more than Jesus can be pushed back 
because Jesus is more beautiful. So we're focusing in these weeks on the three-part dynamic of growth, changed, known, sent. And this is a week on changed. God the Father ignites passion for Jesus through worship and gives us real spiritual power to push back at whatever seeks to control our hearts. As Jesus does this in worship, as we worship him in spirit and truth, we then have the courage to be known, to get to know other people, but also to let them get to know us, which can be scarier. And then through that process, we are sent out to be God's healing hands to a world that is hurting. You see this at the very end of our story in this woman who's filled with joy. And she says, come meet this Jesus. He told me all that I ever did. He went deeply into my heart and didn't run away. He crushes social convention, and then he's tender as well. So we are called to worship God in spirit and truth, which means according to who Jesus is. So I mentioned that Sean Brock had a terrible opening night at that restaurant in Nashville. Overcome with shame, he works seven days a week for 10 months and then turns to bourbon. Nothing seems to help. He said he was sitting in his home one day, drinking bourbon, feeling a bit of a buzz, and the door knocks. Someone knocks at the door. He ambles over and opens up the door. And who is standing there? Johnny Cash. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Johnny Cash can't be everywhere, okay? But the body of Christ can. So he opens the door, and standing there are two friends and his girlfriend. And they don't have to say a word. And he looks at them, and he says, Sean says, I'll do whatever you say. He knows why they're there, and he does. And he goes into rehab, and he gets help, and he admits he's at his bottom there, and finally stops hiding. He's now a chef in Charleston with a healthy work-life balance, making red cornbread. And he says he spends time in gardens now. His life isn't perfect, but he says he's fallen in love with dirt again. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Open that door. And why can you open that door? Because a bruised reed he will not break. And he himself is a bruised reed. Will you pray with me? King Jesus, would you lead us to open the door of our heart to you today? Would you lead us always to worship you in spirit and truth, to displace those lesser loves? And Lord, you are the one who provides living water that never runs out. We thank you for the gift of living waters and eternal life. Pray this all to the glory of you. Amen.